Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich. I'm here with Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. With Richard Lawson. Hello. And joining us are two special guests because it is time once again to look into Oscars of the past. And who better to do that than our friends, the co-hosts of the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, Joe Reed and Chris File. Hi, guys. Hello. Now more than ever. (laughs) (laughs) I feel a little greedy for going ahead and doing this because we did we did the 2000 Oscar flashback last uh, fall for the week of the election to spare ourselves from having to do a podcast. week of the election It was a great decision all around, widely regarded as an excellent choice by us. Uh, We're going ahead and doing this now. Um, The timing is intentional. We have the September issue of Vanity Fair out now with Sean Combs on the cover. Looking back at the period between roughly 1999 and 2001 at the turn of the century and kind of the state of the world then and how it's influenced us now. Uh, And so we're talking about the 2001 Oscar race, which was the, uh, you know, I guess mid and mostly post 9-11 Oscars, which we'll certainly talk about. Um, It's the Beautiful Mind year. It's the Halle Berry year. Uh, We're all old enough to remember this as it played out in real time. There's really a lot to talk about. But Joe and Chris, I wanted to kick to you guys first because you guys have discussed uh, numerous 2001 movies on your show, uh, but not any of the movies we'll be talking about because the nature of your show is you talk about the ones that didn't make it. But just kind of broadly, can you set the stage for what this year was uh, from the way you guys have talked about it on this at Oscar Buzz? What what were the stakes of the 2001 Oscars? Um, I mean, the, it definitely was overshadowed by, um, as most things were, um, the events of 9-11. Um, there was a lot of early talk on what are the Oscars even for? Is it inappropriate? Um, and I think that does play out in kind of the spectacle of the movies that uh, you saw nominated, whereas like uh, Moulin Rouge is the movie that made it through the summer because it is kind of the big splashy production. Lord of the Rings made it through in this really big way that, uh, you know, you could split hairs and call like Beauty and the Beast a fantasy film, but a fantasy film like Lord of the Rings had never really made it through. And I think... A lot of that has to do with how uh, audiences could kind of allegorically see that story in light of world events after 9-11. So it kind of gave it this level of gravitas. But it's also, as you mentioned, the year of A Beautiful Mind, which 
is kind of this uh, Oscar comeback uh, narrative years in the making after Ron Howard is snubbed after um, not getting the Best Director nomination for Apollo 13, which was a frontrunner at the time, um, and kind of the uh, emergence of DreamWorks um, as a big like studio player as well. And then you have the Sundance movie in um, in the bedroom making it through, which ends up being uh, Miramax's biggest player of the year because it's their one Best Picture nomination. That, to me, is one of the most interesting storylines of the 2001 Oscar race, which is that mm-hmm. Miramax, which is the sort of... And Miramax, this was the year that they went from being sort of notorious to, like, straight-up infamous with the campaign tactics against A Beautiful Mind, and, like, the entire sort of industry felt very aware of it. Whoopi Goldberg references it immediately in her monologue. It's, like, the first, very first thing she mentions. But the Miramax sort of DreamWorks wars of the, like, Shakespeare in Love versus Saving Private Ryan year, and then, like, Gladiator happens and, and American Beauty, and... So Miramax feels like it's like very, very aggressive, and yet all of its big Oscar hopes completely tank. There's uh, We've covered Captain Corelli's Mandolin on our podcast before, which was like a Miramax Universal co-production, which like I really do feel like quietly sets the stage for a lot of this, because like a lot of this like Harvey Weinstein, Stacey Snyder animosity has its roots in a lot of that. And they're sort of haggling over John Madden of all people. Wait, that was, in, that was in 2000, 2001. That was, it ends up getting released in the summer of 2001, but they had planned on that for a 2000 release. And, so it was a pre-existing another, Oscar failure before this season even begins. Right. Mm-hmm. And so going into to 2001, the expected Miramax players were going to be, well, first of all, Gangs of New York, which was supposed to open in December of 2001. And for, Several reasons, one of which being Scorsese wasn't done with the movie, it got pushed back to the next year. So now Miramax is looking around and it's got what? It's got the shipping news. You know, it's Lassa Hallstrom's next movie after Chocolat. They managed to make such a, you know, get such success out of Chocolat. And it's Spacey and Dench and Julianne Moore and Kate Blanchett. And then that ends up being a big old turd. And then, <laughs> We've covered so that movie as well. Disaster. We covered that movie fairly recently. And then so what they're basically left with, their Sundance acquisition in the bedroom. And in the bedroom, it turns out to be a really odd fit for this aggressive, off-putting, Harvey Weinstein, heavy-handed Miramax campaigning because it's this like quiet, sort of effective, really, really very good movie that that nonetheless becomes sort of the center of this maelstrom because Harvey Weinstein needs to be a major Oscar player in this season. And the other big player, obviously the eventual Best Picture winner, is A Beautiful Mind. And so it becomes this sort of rivalry that ultimately feels very imbalanced because In the Bedroom was never going to win Best Picture anyway. The biggest rival to A Beautiful Mind is... The Lord of the Rings, which is off there at New Line, sort of like on its own little island, so to speak. I think they call it Australia or New Zealand. Literally (laughs) on its own island. (laughs) So it's a really, really fascinating campaign story that is running parallel to this like post 9-11 story of Hollywood kind of rallying to find its purpose in the wake of. And I think that's what you see in like the Tom Cruise intro to the Oscars, which is this like, what are we doing here a little bit? 
Yeah, Chris, you referenced that in the beginning, the idea that, like, now more than ever, we must go to the movies. And, like, Tom mm-hmm. Hanks references it at the end when he presents Best Picture. Like, we are all united in one place. And I haven't watched this year's Oscars, but it would be really interesting to contrast these Oscars with the COVID Oscars. Like, the idea of, like, everyone rallying behind the flag. Like, I feel like that spirit didn't exist this time around. And that might nope. say more about how the Oscars have changed no. over time than the two different uh, disasters. But it was uh, it was a fascinating throwback. Well, they were placed a little bit differently, too, because the COVID Oscars were like right as vaccines were rolling out. So things were looking a little bit more optimistic, whereas you watch this Oscar ceremony and it really feels like they're trying to like rev the engines of the pageantry of it because like it took a minute for things to feel appropriate again. Mm hmm. That would be my contrast is like, I feel like the COVID Oscars, if we want to call them that, were trying to be as low key as possible. Mm -hmm. So as not to like rub in people's faces, the opulence of this evening. And and the 2001 Oscars were the exact opposite, like so much pomp and circumstance. Um, So if like, that's what you wanted, if you were looking for like escapism, there's a moment where Ben Stiller and Owen Wilson are doing their like costume bit. And Ben Stiller's like, a billion people are watching this Owen. And I was like, oh, that's not, that's not the case anymore. Don't they still throw that number around though? I feel like you hear that every year around the Oscars, regardless of how true it is at this point. But I think I think I think that worked better than that idea of like let's all go to this party together. You at home are here with us at this party, and uh... well, and the mandates were slightly different too. Where in the COVID Oscars, a lot of the impediments were you couldn't go a- out anywhere. You couldn't. So like the idea of this sort of party happening without masks and sort of you know in a centralized location was a little bit of Hollywood trying to get away with sort of having the kind of party that we couldn't all have. Whereas yeah. post 9-11, so much more of it was this sort of emotional aspect of can we... It reminded me a lot of uh, the the Saturday Night Live first back after 9-11 and, you know, making the joke about, like, can we, can we be funny again? Mm-hmm. And this thing was just like Hollywood tends to sort of... The navel-gazing <laughs> aspect of Hollywood, which is just like is it okay if we're, you know, pretty and fun like we normally are? And it's just like, yes, yes, it is. And a lot of what this Oscar ceremony was is this odd little, like, push-pull of um, Hollywood's sort of self-importance, which we all bristle against, but also I do feel like it's, I get very, like, you want me on that wall, you need me on that wall when Hollywood gets (laughs) self-important because it's like, we do want that out of them to some degree. Um, and but it leads to these like, you know, cringy moments with, you know, Tom Cruise and and these sort of just like this is, you know, why we're here. And yet this is maybe my favorite Oscar ceremony or at least one of them ever, because it is absolutely incredibly uninterested in apologizing for itself. It is mm-hmm. long. It all of the like production of it feels very thought out, like the writing and the banter for the presenters is all very good. I think they take their time with montages and have really talented people make these little short films. And it all feels, it takes their time with the best picture presentations where like the best picture, it's not just like a a sizzle reel. It's, you know, the talent involved is sort of like talking about the film and sort of explaining why, you know, it is what it is. And it feels like what I want the Oscars to be, which is a yearbook snapshot of what this year in film was and what 
what these movies that we're talking about were in a way that like recent Oscar ceremonies, the thing that I hate the most is it feels like we're rushing to get off a of TV. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, everything mm-hmm. feels like we're just, you know, don't don't yell at us for taking too much time. Don't yell at us for being too, you know, self-important, whatever. Just like get off our case. And this Oscars felt like it was just not going to apologize for that. And I loved that. And Whoopi's an incredible host. <laughs> Whoopi's so good at this one. She's It's her best uh, job by far, I feel like. Um, all right, Richard, I'm throwing to you. What's your what is your strong memory of the 2001 Oscar race and how how did looking back on it at this point change anything for you? I mean, it was a weird time. I was graduating from high school slash a freshman in college. So I wasn't like seeing a ton of movies. I saw Moulin Rouge. Then college started a week later, 9-11 happened <laughs> and everything was just very. So I think I had seen in the bedroom and like Lord of the Rings, certainly. But like I wasn't as invested in this one year because I was m- very distracted by mostly college stuff. So it's kind of funny to look back. It's also so strange to hear these things like jokes about uh, security measures. And you're like, well, that w- that's the new normal now. I mean, you couldn't get into any kind of event without going through a metal detector or, you know, checking your pockets or something now. Um, yeah. And then to hear... Robert Redford say in his um, speech where he's getting his honorary award that, you know, going forward in Hollywood, we must embrace risk just as we do, you know, the, the sure things or the safe bets. And it's like, well, that didn't stand. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> right. Like this was like almost the, you know, seven years later, six years after the broadcast, we get Iron Man and then it's off to the races, you know. Um, so it does feel like this real crux point um, in the industry, which is funny because it was a real crux point in my life. So I don't know, maybe maybe the Oscars always echo what you're going through in that period of your life, or, or at least <laughs> you can make those connections if you want. It's crazy how many movie stars are at these Oscars. Like they get they they tried out Tom Cruise in the beginning, which is hilarious because he and Nicole Kidman had been divorced for not very long, and she's like sitting front row as a nominee for Milan Rouge, and, and there of he is course on stage. the camera cuts to her incredibly <laughs> <I> mean, rudely. <laughs> of course you did, um, but like Russell Crowe, Denzel Washington, Julia Roberts, Halle Berry, like stardom has changed a lot, and the what stars do that get them nominated Oscars like has changed. You know, obviously a lot of things have shifted, but you do think like, oh, that's why like. 40 million people watch the Oscars back then and won't do it now. Like, it's just everything has changed in, in this dynamic. It feels like the vibe of this Oscars felt very, you could feel how much of an industry town and an industry sort of night it was in a way that I do feel like we've lost somewhat. It's for as much as now, you know, media covers everything. Everybody sort of knows everything that's going on and there doesn't seem to be that kind of insularity for Hollywood anymore, whereas at this Oscars, all of the sort of whoopies, you know, inside jokes about the Miramax uh, campaigning stuff, um, just this idea that, like, the community was rallying around the country, essentially, you know what I mean, at this at this sort of moment, and all the big stars sort of came out. They got Nora Ephron to do a short film. They got Penelope Spheres to do a short film. They got, the, uh, like, the Coen brothers to write stage banter. They got, oh, right. you know, I think that's part of the reason why that the presenter banter was really good is because they got uh, writers, you know, and, and really talented people to write it, which I thought was so funny when it came to, who was it that had to present the James Cameron written banter? And I was just like, oh, like... We love James Cameron, I guess, for a lot of things, but maybe not for his writing. And so the right, I remember it being just sort of like, it was, uh, I, the one line that I wrote down was like, blood, sweat, tears, and software. And I'm just like, oh, Jim. Oh, that's, that's, that's James Cameron's DNA. 
It was Tobey <laughs> Maguire and Kirsten Dunst who had to do that. Um, because it, was, it wasn't just banter. It was like they asked these famous screenwriters to describe the jobs, the technical yeah. jobs, so people at home could understand them. But what was hilarious is that every single description – I mean, the Coen brothers is pretty funny, but like every single description was so – tortured and dense and i was like what this if clarification oh, was the it. aim well no oh, no i mean it I was like it. it was funny and but it, if clarification was the aim that that prompt was not fulfilled at all sure well some sure. of it is delivery of the presenter too like you have uh jody foster being like magician painter yeah. and it's amazing <laughs> but like reese and ryan Philippi had this like really like kind of very funny moment as they were you know delivering theirs or like halle berry um with the with the script by um Alan and, and Marilyn Bergman where we she's just doing this like rapid fire little like patter yeah. um uh, that was reading great. song I lyrics it. and I it's just like Halle oh this Berry. is I don't know. It yeah. felt cool, it felt special, and it felt very again, sort of like unconcerned with being very long. And I loved that. You do really feel that level of love. Uh, across the entire ceremony to the point where even the announcers, they got Donald Sutherland and Glenn Close to do the announcing, which is like one of the most soothing things about the Famous ceremony. Famous non-Oscar winners, Donald Sutherland and Glenn Close, trapped backstage. It, was so it did weird. feel a little rude. Um, <laughs> Glenn Close reading ad copy for JCPenney is a thing that like, now I've got, I've, I've got it in my life and it'll never get taken away from me. Well, I want to say something to what Richard was saying in terms of like, I, I did write down like, I was trying to encapsulate what these Oscars were, and I was like, it's like the encroaching franchise Oscars, right? Because, like, you've got Fellowship is making a center here. You've got a Harry Potter, some Harry Potter nods. Um, it's just like a, a new era. And watching what I do love, I, I don't mean to come down negatively on this show because I loved watching it. And what I did love was remembering the time when you could count on a ton of people going to see the mid-level movie or not even the mid-level movie, but like what yeah. was up at the Oscars. You know what I mean? Like right. a ton of people saw Gosford Park, a ton of people saw Moulin Rouge. Like it wasn't nobody uh, seeing these movies. A right. ton of people saw A Beautiful Mind. And so you could make these jokes and references and and count on the fact that we are all operating from the same context and playbook. Do you know what I mean? And then when when the franchise, you know, Kirsten Dunst and Tobey Maguire being there is part of the whole yeah. like mm -hmm. franchise encroachment. And so like when that starts swallowing everything and when when the schism between popular and Oscar um really starts in earnest, that's um it's just so much harder to rally everyone around a set of movies. It's just so interesting that, like, after what was it after nine eleven, right? Like, the big question was, is irony dead, right? Right. And and it turned out that it actually it wasn't. It only kind of redoubled, and it turned into snark, and it turned into internet humor, and and all that. Mm. And and this Oscars broadcast is decidedly unironic. I mean, it is mm -hmm. totally earnest. Of four hours and twenty three minutes of like, we yep. are a pillar of American culture, which is not tr untrue. Um, but that I feel like this was both uh, this kind of triumphant restatement of purpose for the Oscars, but also maybe one of the last times when that statement could be made without getting eye rolls or Internet, you know, blowback. I mean, a year right. after this broadcast, uh, the U.S. started bombing Iraq and then everything kind of just tumbled yeah. into like schisms and atomization in American culture. And so it's this weird moment of reclamation that also was the last time that yeah. it could do that without, um, you know, and then ratings started dropping and everything like that. So it's weirdly like the end and the beginning of something at once. 
Yeah. I was so struck. Um, you know, I've rewatched Halle Berry's speech many times because it's an amazing mm-hmm. Oscar speech, including when she starts thanking her lawyers and everyone starts laughing and she's like, nope, still doing it. Naked on yep. my lawyers. Yep. Um, but she's so just sincere. She's so aware of the history going into it. You know, she says it's for Dorothy Dandridge and Lena Horne and everybody. Um, and without the frustration that we have around it now, like it's just the so grateful to have opened that door without the kind of like, I think, well-earned frustration we have now that it took 74 years for a black woman to win this actress. It still hasn't happened since. Right. Uh, and the same with Sidney Poitier getting the uh, honorary Oscar and then Denzel Washington wins like it's a huge night for representation kind of well before the internet push to I think much more um, thorough representation at the Academy happened Um, but it all just feels so sincere and Halle Berry's just so happy I love her speech so much and Denzel's speech is great too Uh, even you know he's winning his second Oscar so he's a little bit more chill about it it's great when someone is just like, I'm so fucking happy to have won this award. Like, I know! Yeah, like, <laughs> because again, the end of irony, now people, I mean, you, you get the really effusive speeches still, and Melissa Leo, I think, is still giving her speech, but like, <laughs> but, <laughs> but like a lot of times it now comes with a sort of like, oh, geez, oh, well, huh, you know, like, and yeah. this right. is this moment. And because, and you know, she's celebrating not just her win, but what it means in a broader sense. Um, but it's just like that moment, that moment is probably not, reproducible again you know mm-hmm. um everything feels so self-aware from like like 17 different boxes in boxes and boxes in terms of how you know you know you're making a speech and you know that it's going to get instantly sort of chopped up and and fed through this ringer of commentary and takes and reaction and whatever and the you know lack of self-consciousness about that 20 years ago you can feel it you can feel there's a little bit more freedom to be a little embarrassing you know what i mean mm-hmm. there's a little bit of freedom to just sort of just like you know actually throw yourself out there in a way and there were there were probably no posts the next morning why halle berry left these 10 actors off of her list of people <laughs> right who, you know right. Like, mm-hmm. well yeah, uh, yeah. and I, I think also the I, I love this night. I love this when the Sydney Poitier of it all, Denzel and Sydney Poitier, like yeah. Hallie, all of that sort of stuff, because they were like <laughs> toasting each other with their Oscars. But um, but it also does have that air of like we did it, we fixed uh, a seventy four year old problem, and then the fact that like Halle Berry is the one and only yes yeah, woman color to ever yeah. win, and I was like tallying it up, and it looks to me like. Depending on how you count people from Spain, either uh, only nine or eleven like women of color have been even nominated since. And I was just like, it's, it's it's tough to watch this seeming triumphant moment for progress and then know that like there's miles to go yet. Do you know? Yeah. And to have Whoopi Goldberg make that joke about the mudslinging making everyone look black. <laughs> or all the nominees look black and the audience like roars with laughter and you're just like, yeah. guys, you are, do not get to laugh with, you know, like, well, we, it's done. So now we can just right. have like, a few yucks about this. It's like, no, no, no. This is just the beginning yeah. of this conversation. It's not the end of it by any means. My favorite way that Whoopi engaged in that is, uh, you know, they did like they did a long uh, pre-roll before Sidney Poitier and they did a long pre-roll before Robert Redford won or acceptance of like people talking about their importance. And every single person talking about Sidney Poitier was black and not a single black person was interviewed for the Robert Redford thing. And she's like, <laughs> she's like, I have things to say about Bob. She's like, why? Why is it just you tried out every single black person, you know, talk about Sidney Poitier. You didn't ask us about Bob. And I was like, that's it. I thought that was a good moment. Good job. Yeah. Baby. Was it? I can't remember if it felt like a fait accompli going into it that Halle Berry and Denzel Washington were both going to win. Was that assumed? They were both outcome? really tight races. Yes. Yeah. Well, and they had both lost. 
the Golden Globes that year. Russell Crowe and uh, Sissy Spacek had both won the Globes. And there was definitely, like, movement, obviously. And the, and the ways in which we sort of tracked this were mostly just, like, insiders, you know, in Hollywood sort of, you know, sending reports. And I would watch whatever, you know, E! show about gossip columnists were talking about the Oscar race that year. And did Hallie win the SAG? Was that what sort of started to turn that tide, I feel like? Yes. Now I'm not entirely sure. But anyway, yeah, things were sort of moving in that direction. And it definitely felt like there was a chance that one or both of them were going to win. But it was it was close. It was definitely close. Well, and Russell Crowe, too, had the unfortunate thing of the what happened when he won BAFTA and was cut off and he aggressed the producer of the show. Uh, wait, no, Chris, I tell the whole story because I did not remember this at all from the time. And it is bonkers. Russell Crowe wins BAFTA. BAFTA was at some point in February before Oscar final Oscar voting was happening. Um, and he his speech was cut off while he was reading a poem. Uh, he finds the producer and says, how dare you cut off the best actor's poem? And uh, <laughs> reportedly uh, pushed him against a wall. Um, and the only thing Russell Crowe recanted afterwards was that somebody reported he apologized. And right. I guess he only took that back. That definitely <laughs> didn't help his chances, particularly when it was uh, ahead of final Oscar voting. And he, he threw the phone later right yes okay yes yeah that, that was, was a separate i don't yeah. i don't remember if that was a separate season but uh that was <laughs> something else that happened but he um was, he was sitting in that prime position wasn't he he was like right oh on yeah the he had that cat bottom left corner sure. yeah, yeah, and yeah, he yeah. seemed mm-hmm. to be maybe you know making a show of it was just like was decidedly very happy and sort of when Whoopi walks down the aisle in her moulin rouge outfit and he seems to be very sort of joyful and happy and it reminded me that like he got so much flack for being so grumpy at the at the previous year's oscars so when he's some... when it, when uh, when Halle Berry gets up to the stage he says something to her that she seems to be very grateful to hear and uh, like i can't yeah. tell what it is but it's like oh, yeah. it's a really nice moment and then like yeah. when uh <laughs> Julia Roberts like hangs off of Denzel Washington as he exits the stage <laughs> like she's like, it's really incredible Wonderful. to watch yeah. my coworker at the time i remember we went i went into work the next day and we were sort of you know postmorteming the oscars and she was so mad at Julia Roberts and she was just like that man has a wife <laughs> like okay <laughs> They're good friends. They've worked oh, together. They're incredibly good friends. Yes. Respect no, for the Pelican I know, But I just, I remember that still to this day. I was just like, he has a wife. Oh, silly. <laughs> I also love the yeah. pure actor moment of Julia Roberts. Not, she can't help herself from like making it a little bit about her by saying, That's I it. love my I life. I love my oh, life. Yeah. Just like, yeah. sure, great. And when she comes on stage, she disses the composer. She's like, yeah. I'm glad Tom Conti's not here. It's like, damn. We're talking yeah. about the stick man still a year later. I also liked, though, when Randy Newman won his Oscar after 16 nominations. And that was a great moment, too, where the whole audience sort of stands and applauds. And, okay. and he Whoopi sort of looks later at, says, I'm so happy for Randy Newman. <laughs> but it, was it John Williams who was conducting the yes. uh, orchestra? And he yes. sort of looks and he sees with the, when the little you know prompter says he's got four seconds. He's like, I don't really have four seconds. You're like, you're not going to play me off after 16 nominations, are you? And he also mentions that like all these people <laughs> in the pit who I've worked with before... Um, so basically just being like, don't, please don't, uh, uh, play me off. I thought that was a very good moment. I, I had a, cause I'd forgotten 
I didn't re-look up who won while I was watching so that I could be occasionally surprised. And I had forgotten that Randy Newman won for that a very forgettable song. And I'm not mad that Randy Newman, well, he has two Oscars now, but I'm not mad that he has an Oscar. I'm just mad for that song and that it beat that Enya song, which is like so good. I let the Fellowship of the Ring credits roll every single time uh, just so I could hear Enya sing that song. Did not uh, know we had an Enya <laughs> stand here. <laughs> I, this time watching them, knowing that Randy Newman would eventually win another Oscar, I was like, this could have been Diane's. You could have given this to Diane Warren for that Faith Hill song. Like they better be as nice to Diane Warren when she finally wins as they were to Randy Newman. I think we're all just gonna she... be so exhausted by the time it happens. Just like and <laughs> and the sliding scale of how the like how bad the songs are getting sort of as we go along. I'm just like, where where's the quality level gonna be that by the time she actually does win? Whereas at least like there you'll be is not is no um because you loved me and it's no uh nothing's gonna stop us now. But it's certainly better than, you know, the hunting the ground, Ruth Bader whatever song. Yeah. yeah. Listen, yeah. Pearl Harbor got that sound editing Oscar. They they filled the tank on their love for Pearl Harbor. <laughs> <laughs> um, sure. OK, I want to get I want to talk about the race as a whole and some of the movies that we rewatched um, yeah. and get away from the ceremony a little bit. Um, but I yeah. did. I wanted to take Joanna's suggestion to uh, just go through and pick our maybe most uh, cringe inducing moments because, uh, boy, the past is another country. And there is a lot of things <laughs> in this Oscar ceremony that stopped me dead in my tracks. Yeah. It's hard not to headline that with Woody Allen. And I know, you know, you get why he was there and why that was such a big moment. Obviously, like the the wounds of what had happened in New York were incredibly fresh. And there was, I mean, you just try and remember back to what that was. And there was such a rallying point around it. But like just the idea that because Woody Allen had made it a point to never attend the Oscars, for his own whatever, you know, dumb little reasons. He's got his little jazz quartet that he plays with that he can't come to. Like, that was the excuse that he always gave. And this idea that now he has sort of, you know, deigned to honor the Oscars with his presence or whatever. And and they're so grateful. They're like, and oh, they're so lucky grateful us. And they're so effusive. And it's, you know, and Whoopi is, is incredibly sort of over the top when she introduces him. And again, this is... Several. This is a decade since the initial accusations about what had uh, gone on had happened, and we had all sort of like comfortably forgotten them. And like, I am no different than anybody else. You know what I mean? I had, you know, me too. But it's really, really cringy to look back and just see the the waves. It's not just like you know seeing somebody in the middle of a montage and you're just sort of like a ghost walking past your grave. This is literally just like we are, you know overflowing with praise. Whereas I thought it was a nice little contrast to that moment where Nathan Lane comes out and he makes the crack about how I thought Monsters, Inc. was uh, was about uh, Harvey and Bob at Miramax. And <laughs> I, I was like, oh, okay. Like, Nathan at least but is, the like, going to come is with not, a jab. The audience isn't with him. Like, They're too all. afraid. No, the audience <laughs> is like, oh. No, is not Nathan with him Lane, on that joke. I got, like, Excellent five presenter. solid LOLs out of that Nathan mm-hmm. Lane moment. Like, every yeah. line, he just landed the shit He's out great. of it. He's great. He's fantastic. Yeah. I also yeah. think it's interesting that Woody Allen introducing the toast to New York, New York that was Nora Ephron had put together mm-hmm. three years after this broadcast basically stopped making movies in New York for like a lo- right. like a while, <laughs> like yeah. Match Point and all his Europe movies. Yeah, and the Oscars loved him for it. Yeah, yeah. it's mm-hmm. just kind of funny irony. 
Well, and he makes a joke out of, well, you could have had all of these other actors and then he, or all these other directors like uh, Spike Lee and all of these other famous New York City directors and he makes a joke out of it and he says, oh, well, those people were unavailable. And it, meanwhile, and you're like, yes. we're thinking in the past, like, yes, I would rather see Spike Lee present New York City than you. Yeah. It was just a funny, it was just a funny moment because I was like, oh, yeah, okay, this is the post 9-11 Oscars. Like, that becomes clear when Tom Cruise starts talking. Um, and then I was like, oh, wasn't there a great New York montage? Yeah, there was. It was so good. Oh, Woody Allen presents it. Oh, no. So I was just like dreading it. Anyway. But it's a good montage and Nora Efron made it. So we get to yes, still celebrate that's the what montage. I, that's what a I like to montage. think of as well. Yes. Yeah. All right. Who else has a cringe moment they want to revisit? I'll go with a light one and I'll just say introducing uh, Ryan Phillippe and Reese Witherspoon as a legally bound, the legally bound Ryan Phillippe <laughs> and Reese Witherspoon. <laughs> and then he makes this joke about like she asks if she can read the winner and he's like, sure, go ahead. You make more than I do. And it's like really tense and that weird. Was I love, that was in my so tracks. funny though. I thought that, I, I don't know. I thought that was so shockingly funny the way she reacted to that. I oh, I felt like great. I saw divorce coming like immediately. Well, I mean, <laughs> and it was just funny because like I was like this is one of Ryan Phillippe's like most Oscar legit years because he's in Gosford Park which is a fantastic film and I was like yeah. Ryan are you still feeling that insecure anyway well, I that's mean, how but he's okay now because he also just sold a company for 900 million dollars right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Weird, weirdly enough yes yeah um well, okay well if I'm not going to bring up Ryan and Reese uh just you know Donald Trump's in the montage that I guess Errol Morris did direct it it's not in the style of Errol Morris it is Errol Morris that, it is definitely like, New Errol Morris talking about yes. it I yeah. you just know that's the ghost walking past your grave thing you're talking about, Joe. He's he's a landmine in America's cultural history. He just shows up wherever you least expect it, and all of a sudden it's just like here he is. There, he, yeah. it's just like you right you kind of know that the Emmys are going to have Trump pop up, and I was not prepared for it at the Oscars. Yeah. Boo to the uh, past. Can I raise one more sort of one more relationship thing that's interesting? I think out of that Oscars. So here's what we know about the timeline of Jennifer Connelly and Paul Bettany. Is that like he declared his love for her on 9-11 or post 9-11? Like that's something we know. Two mm -hmm. days after 9-11, Paul Bettany declared his love for Jennifer Connolly. This is kind of like he they've given interviews about it. You can go look it up. So they are together at this point, but he is not there, nor is he mentioned by anyone. Any <laughs> beautiful mind winner gives no love to Paul Bettany. So but the ghost of Paul Bettany is there. When Jennifer Collins is like, I believe in love, I'm like, she's talking about Paul Bettany. Yeah. She just really can't cute. say his name yet. Cause I think yeah. they were like Or Jennifer Connolly too. Like she got so sort of raked across the coals for that speech for, you know, delivering her speech into, you know, the palm of her hand essentially. Just like not being oh. able to take her eyes off of um, her pre-prepared remarks that she had on the folded piece of paper. Everybody and brings years... out a list this year. This is the ceremony where it was like they, the producers started saying, this is the reason where they're yes. like, please don't just read a list of names from your piece of paper because like everyone brings out a piece of paper. Yeah. And there was that one um, sort of wrap up of the Oscars that I read and I can't remember who had written it now, but um, talked about, oh no, it was an unnamed Hollywood uh, insider who was oh, talking no. about... Um, uh, Jennifer Connelly, oh, talking about their prospects, their career prospects after. And they said, yeah, Jennifer Connelly will probably get some more, uh, some good roles, even though nobody liked her dress and she should have memorized her speech. And I was just like, oh this is God. so mean. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Go do your Oscar speech, unnamed Hollywood yeah. Insider. Yeah, right. Speaking of cringy relationship things, um, I mean, I think we've all had this experience where, you know, you're nominated for a big award and then your ex husband presents 
the like basically introduces the show you know i mean mm-hmm. they just I mean, it happened to nicole kidman and tom cruise obviously yep. but like we've all been there yes, and it's obviously. just so funny to think about that that marriage ended in what february of 2001 right oh wow and then nicole mm-hmm. kidman had the others and moulin rouge in, in that same year and was just like yeah. kind of like this was the new era of nicole she gets nominated for moulin rouge there she is and then bam right at the beginning of the show is a reminder of the past you know it's just probably inescapable but she was a nominee and he showed up in adult braces she did i was gonna say (laughs) i had to google did was tom cruise wearing braces and he was so sure was just just which is fine great good job tom he did that for uh minority report i'm guessing Um, can we talk about A Beautiful Mind since to pivot off of Jennifer Connelly and Paul Bettany of it? Because uh, I did rewatch that one uh, and I had not seen it since 2001, certainly. And I like I was thinking about the 9-11 of it and, just, you know, the movie had so many stories to it and all the negative campaigning. But I kind of feel like it would have won Best Picture no matter what. Like, as weird a year as that was, it's just so in the wheelhouse. It had so many it narratives is. that it have nothing is. to do with yeah. the movie itself. Like Ron Howard giving his director speech. You're like, yeah, there was so much goodwill for Ron Howard. Everyone wanted him to have an Oscar. They were going to give it to him kind of no matter what the apollo 13 snub of it um yeah plus it's this like it's this classic you know great man supportive wife narrative that like hollywood really loves it's very old-fashioned in the way that it sort of tells its story and yet with this like modern twist of like you know finding out uh, towards the end of the movie that like these things aren't real and it's Mm -hmm. so i think it allowed audiences to feel like it was, you know, smart in a way that, like, I don't think it was, but you know, Not at uh, all. Hollywood <laughs> loves math. I mean, that's, that's been proven <laughs> time and time well, again. But I think that also allowed voters to feel smart. Was just like, I'm voting for the math movie because it's so beautiful. Like, but at the end of the day, even though it's certainly not the largest scale movie, it's certainly not the most uh, symbolic of what Hollywood has become since. But like of that lineup of five movies, it is absolutely the most Hollywood movie of the five best picture nominees it is but is it the one that has lingered because like i also i rewatched it as well and i hadn't seen it since but like you know moulin rouge or gosford park i mean maybe less gosford park yeah i mean fellowship i'm like you guys are you're you're headed for your big win in a couple years and i'm not worried about you guys missing sure but i mean i think just like looking at the films yeah yeah completely completely but i was just sort of like Moulin Rouge, like if Moulin Rouge had the right campaign behind it, I feel like it could have come through, you know. I think getting the nomination was enough of a, like, it was such a struggle to get to that point. So many people, I remember the narrative just being Mm -hmm. like, absolutely not, is this going to happen? It's big, it's garish, it's too modern, it's too loud, it's too... You know, One a lot of, of people really didn't like it. Win helps. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like for as many people as loved it, there were a lot of people who like really, really, you know, did not care for it. It was a little bit divisive. And I think just getting that nomination, it was a spring movie. Like there was a lot sort of going against it. Um, but yeah, I think with twenty years of retrospect, A Beautiful Mind is like definitely the least of those movies now looking back and well in the bedroom followed by in the bedroom who like but I in think the bedroom is amazing though yeah no, it's a great See, movie like, and todd field's great like a great director and then like i i really like that movie but like people don't talk about that movie you know? yeah the cultural legacy yeah. is limited Every once in a while, I'll see little pockets of, like, it'll get added to a streaming service, and I'll see, like, small little pockets of people being like, oh, In the Bedroom's actually really fantastic. And, I'm like, and wondering yes, why he's only made one movie since, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I think the, the funny thing about Moulin Rouge is, like, 
I mean, I know the different branches kind of nominated in director and picture, but imagine watching Moulin Rouge and being like, that was great. The direction, though, I don't know. It's like that whole movie is direction. <laughs> it did kind of get a boost of goodwill for ba- Baz Luhrmann not getting that nomination. But like, this is also kind of a pretty heavy hitting um, best director lineup, too, because you also have you have two uh, lone director nominees in Ridley Scott for Black Hawk Down, which was a really late arrival, and then uh, Mulholland Drive for David Lynch, which is the second time he pulled off a lone director nomination. Kind of crazy. And Mulholland Drive only got one nomination, and it was Best Director, yeah. which is and like now regarded as like crazy. the best movie of the twentieth or twenty first <laughs> century or whatever, like by you know certain critics polls or whatever. Yeah. Um, so they, it's funny that that pattern, which we you know we still see happening up to now you know what was it was it Vinterberg was nominated for another round right this yes. year yeah. Uh, yeah like the, once in a while the director's branch is like no no here we're gonna nudge this like art film yes. in or whatever what prompted me to uncover the the big Weinstein scandal was sort of this backwards uh, way into it which is I was like why isn't Amelie winning anything mm-hmm. and so then I like looked at and then like and when it didn't even win like international feature I was like what is going on why didn't Amelie win anything so I just googled why didn't Amelie win anything um and uh and the d- director has given a couple interviews where he's just like I blame the anti-Weinstein there was a boycott on Weinstein films and since we were a Weinstein film that's why we didn't win because Harvey went too far like slinging mud around a beautiful mind. He really pissed a lot of people off that season. Also, um, I think it was at the Golden Globes that Audrey Tattoo threw a phone at (laughs) (laughs) I had never seen Amelie uh, before we did this podcast. And so yesterday I made a... uh, a very game effort to watch that movie and I got about 45 minutes into it and I just, I couldn't hang with it. I was, it's not my thing, I gotta say. It's really, I mean, it is so, there aren't really a lot of movies like it, but its level of cutesiness, like it predates the Twee era of the late 2000s by a lot and I think if you didn't hit that at the time, now in retrospect, it just feels so unbearably cute that I think it would be really hard to watch. I rewatched yeah. it too and was charmed by it, but I also, I you know, Emily. was eighteen at the yeah, time. Yeah, I mean, wh- what if Wes Anderson, but French? Um, <laughs> we're, you're, you're all going to have that question answered soon with the French Dispatch. That's so. true. <laughs> but like, what if Wes Anderson, but French, and like on amphetamines or something like that? That's like, like, there's at least like, well, yeah, a little bit like of a lackadaisicalness to Wes Anderson. A dash of Lerman in there, like yeah, put some Lerman yeah, in there, yeah. yeah. Um, I want to talk about the Miramax thing because it really is bananas how intense this campaign got. And the uh, the Beautiful Mind mudslinging was like mostly about whether or not it was true. It was based on this biography of John Nash, but it definitely uh, glided over the uh, the thornier corners of his life and the fact that he and his wife uh, had gotten divorced for many years and all this other stuff. Um, and it's never been conclusively proven who spread all those rumors, but uh, many of the, you know, the smoking guns point right back to Miramax and to the Weinsteins. Um, and it goes back to Shakespeare in Love versus Saving Private Ryan from when, because DreamWorks and Universal co-produced A Beautiful Mind, so there's like a real blood feud going on here. Uh, and uh, Harvey Weinstein confronted Stacy Snyder, the Universal chief at the Golden Globes, and threatened to bury the movie. Um, and so then after all of this, there was this piece in the LA Times about all the promo tactics that, you, that Miramax was using for In the Bedroom. And I'm just going to read this verbatim piece from this Newsweek article from 2002. In a move both petty and off the wall, Miramax publicist wrote a letter to the Los Angeles Times on February 11th with bullet points defending Miramax's Oscar tactics. The first letter of each bullet point spelled out the name of Miramax's blood enemy, but since the Times cut Miramax's second bullet point, the hidden message read, Deemworks. <laughs> 
Steamworks. <laughs> the pettiness of that is astonishing. Oh. It's amazing that this really happened. In the Deemworks logo, the little boy falls off the moon. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Will you Deemworks? There's a little red dot that shoots him off of the moon. Yeah. The thing I find so funny is that it is ultimately about In the Bedroom, which is a movie that they had acquired at Sundance and... And Todd Field has these stories about just, like, how Harvey Weinstein wanted him to cut 20 minutes from it. And he, like, refused to let him lock the cut of the movie for, like, nine months and and refused to, like, take a meeting with him or anything like that. And there was just this whole, you know, very kind of typical Harvey Scissorhands thing about it. And then ultimately, you know, so but this is the movie that, like. Harvey had to settle for when all the other yeah. big ones went out and it's they just, just didn't want DreamWorks to win they didn't care and, if they right won. and mm-hmm. poor in the bedroom is just trying to do its thing being a you know <laughs> small little really wonderful little movie and yeah I do love um you know this is the first time there's another one to come where when people say oh that Tomei Oscar win was a fluke and it's like nope she got two other nope. nominations after mm-hmm. my cousin Vinny and this is one yeah. of them yeah. and she's terrific in it I mean no one yes. takes a slap from Sissy Space Act quite like Marissa Tomei <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, looking back at all the Beautiful Mind stuff, like I think there are probably some egregious things that they tried to do, being like, this is inspired by the inspiring real life story that, you know, thanks to the na- nature of mental illness, I think it was just like much more complicated in real life. But the thing that wasn't really part of the debate that I didn't even remember is that Alicia Nash, who is, uh, you know, the wife played by Jennifer Connelly, is from South America and she's she's Latina and that was a, like completely white whitewashed that character. And there was one piece in the LA Times, I think, that was written about it. And otherwise, it just wasn't a factor. And right. that would be such a huge deal now. And it's yes. kind of crazy to me that that was thoroughly overlooked then. Of all the things that, that Harvey brought out of the, you know, in the arsenal to throw at that movie, that that wasn't one of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can I can I also say I don't know if you if you watched all the way to the end, but uh, Graydon Carter gets thanked in the uh, Beautiful Mind thing because uh, Brian Grazer first read the excerpt from the book in an issue of Vanity Fair. So, so it's our fault. Well, he <laughs> he suggested that Brian Grazer make a movie out of it, and then in the New York Times a couple years later, it was reported that he got a hundred thousand dollar finder's fee for suggesting that Beautiful Mind be made into a movie. So congratulations to our former boss, Graydon Carter. Wait, but I suggest things should be movies all the time. So <laughs> I, I was going to say, Brian Grazer, if you're listening, you owe us. Mm-hmm. I'm on Venmo. I'm pretty sure I at some point gave the idea for Gunpowder Milkshake to somebody. So like, just like where the hell's my money? Jesus. Trolls World Tour. I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah. I sent Jessica Chastain the Wow Presents link to the eyes of Tammy Faye. <laughs> in, in your capacity as the social media director of Wow. No. <laughs> um, I also want to shout out the fact that Daniel Radcliffe said his favorite movie was Twelve Angry Men, and he's like a tiny. He's like in he's his Harry Potter costume, and yeah. he's in his like tiny. And he's like, "It's the first black and white film I ever saw, and it's just it can change the world." Film can. <laughs> and you're like, feels <laughs> so on brand for who he's grown up to Which be. Study hall? Did you watch that in Daniel? Yeah. <laughs> Um, to go over to, to rewatches, I watched I Am Sam for the first time. Um, oh I don't know why. It was on Netflix and it seemed easy. I, I didn't watch the whole thing, I have to confess. Uh-huh. Um, that is a that is a brutal rewatch. Like You talk about things that have aged poorly. And I Am Sam is such a tiny blip in the Oscar ceremony because Sean Penn wasn't there and like it just basically doesn't happen. But God, things that movie could just like never, ever, ever, ever no. be made again. It's, talk, yes. it's shocking to me that it's even on Netflix, that it has like a streaming life at all. I guess I'm, I definitely own the soundtrack too. I am oh, with all those Beatles covers? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, was a, that was a big deal. Great soundtrack. That movie was the direct inspiration for that joke in Tropic Thunder, right? 
Oh, no, for, I think uh, radio was, but oh, like that was like radio. part of the oh, God. part okay. of the vibe. But okay. I, I always, at least I thought, I don't know, I don't know okay. Ben Stiller's life, but yeah. When we get to the point where we're uh, do, redoing the 2008 Oscars and things you can't do now, Robert Downey Jr.'s nomination is going to be a fun time for all of us. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give us six years. I rewatched Bridget Jones's Diary, which I had seen before, but like a very, very long time ago. And it's cute. It's nice. I think Renee is better than I think a lot of people sort of gave her credit for. I know she got the Oscar nomination, but there was a lot of talk about her playing British and, you know, her, you know, gaining weight for the role and yada, yada, yada. And again, it's one of those like preposterous Hollywood movies where it's just like, this girl's so chubby. And it's just like, no, like objectively not. But it's, people said that at the time, but we let them get away with it anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it is like... I, whatever, to call a movie a wine mom movie, but like it really, really, really is a wine mom movie um, in a lot of ways. I said, I, I did I text you where I was like, no, how does a movie invited. with this many... You're not invited to any of my Amelie or Bridget Jones watch parties. <laughs> You're not invited. As a wine mom, I feel very poorly represented by this podcast. Uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not here for it. <laughs> I have no objections. I I just want to curb my own favor here as the guest. I have no problem with the wine mom moniker for the movie. Right. However, over, like that is such a cool nomination though, because like it is a great performance. That movie came out in February of that year, yeah. and it like kind of ran. That she had like incredible scrutiny against her because the whole like press thing around a Texan playing this very famous right. British character um, and it became a very beloved performance. It's the most perfect Hugh Grant role. Absolutely. Ever. He's so like uh, he fits that so well. And we kind of forget that Colin Firth Colin Firth, yeah. No, I was just going to say every line reading that she has is still so funny, still so perfect 20 years later that like. It's a great Christmas movie guys. The sound yeah. drops, the, the song, the needle drops in that movie are, I was so gooped by it. I, th- I texted Katie. Very I think 2001 VH1. I was like, how does a movie with this many white people get to get away with respect and I'm every woman in the same movie? It's amazing. It's the same way like, uh, Whoopi made that joke about mudsling and making everybody black. It was a different time. Joe. Yeah, different time, different time. Yeah. But yeah, she was very good. Any Anything else to wrap up our conversation about the 2001 Oscars? Um, uh, yeah, first Oscar at the Kodak Theater. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, yep. it looks great. Introduction of the animated feature category. First year for Shrek. animated feature. Which yeah. to echo, you know, current discourse, Shrek. You know, like we're, <laughs> we, we just had the Shrek Wars. Uh, well, I think that's f- this particular Oscars. I think has a lot of this. The movies in this year's Oscar race feel particularly sticky. I think you know, we, Joanna, you were talking about this earlier with like. Moulin Rouge and uh, Gosford Park and Lord of the Rings, but even down to like Royal Tenenbaums getting a screenplay nomination. Like that is definitely a movie that I feel like has stuck around because of the Wes Anderson sort of thing. I think Will Smith's performance in Ali is still probably my favorite performance of his. I think he's really, really incredible in that movie. That was and, what I caught up to finally. And like Mulholland Drive and and just like Memento. If, they're, they're not yeah memento right exactly and and obviously this being like the first year of of harry potter and that got a a couple nominations there and it's just there's a lot of movies i didn't have to do a ton of rewatching for this because i'm like oh this is just a movie like i've seen moulin rouge eight billion times i've seen you know maholland drive so many times and it's nice to be able to look back at an oscars that didn't feel like it was pandering 
to, you know, mainstream tastes in any particular way. But these movies are still so prominent in my memory 20 years later. A quick shout out to uh, Walton Goggins, who makes a surprise appearance in this Oscar broadcast. He did not yeah. win the live action short film Oscar, but he was he was in it. And Ray McKinnon, who went on to create Rectify, uh, did win the Oscar. Uh, it was just so nice. Doesn't he see. have an Oscar as a producer of that film? He is uh, on the Wikipedia page. It is only listed as Ray McKinnon and Lisa Blunt, who won the Oscar. I think for he it. I think on Ray. Uh, anyway, uh, as as a qualified Goggins head. I should check myself before I recommend myself. <laughs> I'm pretty sure when I was in, first interviewing him for Vanity Fair, I was like, wait, Walton Goggins has an Oscar? Uh, and found out it was for a live action. I think he was a producer on it, um, but I could be wrong. But, I think uh, the official credit, it might be one of those years that they're like only two people can oh. officially be winning. I mean, he has he's holding one when he's on the stage. I with, know. You know. Uh, and he, he gets all this great whoop of uh, excitement. It's so It's so nice. And Ray McKenna is so charming. That's that's like that's what's so magical about this Oscars. Like even a short, like even the short film award winners. I'm like, I know those folks. That's so fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, guys, we'll see you again this time next year, maybe for the uh, the 2002 Oscar race. Which, oh boy, if you thought the Miramax craziness was uh, intense <laughs> this year, just wait. The future. Uh, Joe the and future. I are already cracking our knuckles to talk about the hours. It's, I was going to say, if you exciting. let me loose to talk about the hours, you'll never hear the end of it. It's, it'll be great. I also want to say, in less than a year's time, I will have a GIF and photo recap of this exact yes. ceremony. Uh, yes, um, I super can. And I think that. that probably about seventy to eighty of those gifts are just going to be Maggie Smith and Ian McKellen introducing Cirque du Soleil, <laughs> which of course has since become you know a yearly tradition at the Oscars. They come out the two of them and they right. say, "Okay, Cirque du Soleil time," you know. I love how Maggie Smith is like already walking off stage as she introduces them. She's yes. like so ready to get out of there. She had to get into her leotard and get back on stage to perform. <laughs> she only she... had so much time to get into the lifting machine. <laughs> she did look incredibly tickled to be seated next to Will and Jada. Uh, that was at, really funny. That yeah. Was great. Also, yeah. I know I keep saying we're going to wrap it up, but by the time they announced Best Actor, Will Smith wasn't there. They just showed a photo of him. He bailed. Yeah. What was it? I. Don't know whether there was a story behind that, but yeah. Their parents, maybe they were going to take care of their kids. (laughs) That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. Chris and Joe, thank you again for joining us again. We could not do these flashbacks without you. you. Uh, Why why don't you guys tell people where to find you uh, first? Uh, Yeah, sure. You can find our podcast, This Had Oscar Buzz. Uh, Follow us on Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. We'll tell you where to find the newest episodes we're talking about movies that were you know hopefuls for oscar that uh, that didn't make it we've got some good ones coming up so yeah check us out there should people follow you on twitter too oh fine i suppose if you would like to follow <laughs> me on twitter i met uh, joe reed reed spelled r-e-i-d and uh you can find me uh, at crispy file that's f-e-i-l uh, and as for the rest of us, for me and Richard and Joanna, you can find us at Vanity Fair. You can find us on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. Uh, I am at Katie Rich and Joanna. Joe wrote this. And Richard. Right, Laws. You can also sign up to text with us at joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen. You can also text us at 213-513-7160. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best description of our editor and producer, Brett Fuchs, goes to Chris File. Magician, painter, 